Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi, Tabisolo Hoko and Figilele Ngwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa is confident that all member states of SACU will continue to cooperate and build bilateral trade relations. Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe has addressed the UN General Assembly over the Sustainable Development Goals and Britain's oldest and longest-serving monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, celebrated her 90th birthday. In economics, Nigeria's government has collected more than 13.57 billion US dollars in its treasury single account. And in sports news, the African dream is not over for South Africa's Mamelodi Sundowns. But first up, the news with Onilin Zinzi. Thank you, Lulu. Now looking at your news update, Chad's incumbent President Idris Deby has won a fifth term in office. The Central African Country's Election Commission announced on Thursday that 63-year-old Derby won 61.56% of the vote in the April 10th poll, easily avoiding a second-round runoff. Derby, who gained power in 1990 at the head of the an armed rebellion abolished restrictions in 2004 on how many times the president can run for office he has however pledged to reintroduce term limits at a time when other african leaders have been trying to amend their constitutions in order to extend their rule Kodovo's former First Lady Simone Gbagbo is set to go on trial on charges of crimes against humanity. This after the country's Supreme Court on Thursday rejected the latest appeal by her lawyers. The 66-year-old had already been sentenced to 20 years in jail last year for a role in violence which followed elections in 2010, which her husband, Lauren Gbagbo, lost. Simone is the subject of a warrant issued by the International Criminal Court in The Hague, which accuses her of a key role in the post-election violence which left more than 3,000 people dead. Ethiopian troops are operating in South Sudan after crossing the border to rescue some 125 Ethiopian children kidnapped during a bloody cattle raid by South Sudanese men. Acting South Sudanese Foreign Affairs Minister Peter Bashir Gandhi says South Sudan's Chief of Staff Paul Malong will go to Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa as soon as this Friday to coordinate. Officials in both countries say there is no tension between the neighboring states. 
Amnesty International says it has new evidence about what it describes as the Nigerian army's mass killings. Amnesty says more than 350 people are believed to have been unlawfully killed by the military between December 12 and 14 last year. Its report contains satellite images that it says appears to show the location of a mass grave. The Nigerian military has, however, dismissed the rights group's reports as hasty, one-sided and biased. And finally, Zambian President Edgar Lungu says he is ashamed by violence that erupted this week, targeting foreign nationals. Hundreds of mainly Rwandan immigrants who own shops in the slums around the capital, Lusaka, fled their homes after their businesses were ransacked by mobs who accused them of ritual killings. Some locals accused foreigners of being behind murders of at least seven people whose body parts, including ears, hearts and penises, were removed allegedly for witchcraft several thousand refugees from rwanda which was embroiled in a genocide in 1994 live in lusaka for channel africa news i am on Linsinsi. africa rise and shine africa Zorka. africa amuka na unare. Hello listener, join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Thank you, Anele. It is 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, South Africa is confident that all member states of the Southern African Customs Union, SACU, will continue to cooperate and build bilateral trade relations. This comes as SACU will soon have a regional fund to finance projects in different member states. This was revealed by a delegation of ministers in the economic cluster led by South Africa's President Jacob Zuma during a visit to Mbabane, Swaziland. Abongile Dumako reports. President Jacob Zuma touched down at Matsapa International Airport in Swaziland, accompanied by a delegation of ministers from the economic cluster. He is in a tour of SACO member states. He has already undertaken visits to Botswana and Namibia. The tour is aimed at engaging members on ideas that will make SACO function better. Plans to ensure that smaller countries do not rely on the oldest custom union for a revenue are on the pipeline. Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis says next meeting will take place in Lesotho. And the other one is the establishment of some kind of a regional fund that will be able to fund cross-border projects because one of the features of SACU is that we haven't actually come together and funded any kind of development project that has uh, any kind of uh, relevance to more than one of us. If we've done it, it's only on a bilateral basis. It's never been uh, through the institutions of SACU. Swaziland is one of the countries within SACU that relies heavily on the Union for Revenue. More than 50% of the country's national budget consists of SACU receipts. But now Minister for Foreign Affairs in Swaziland, Mkwagwa Gamete, says this meeting will be of assistance in strengthening 
the country's economy. There's a lot of trade going on between these two countries, Swaziland and the Republic of South Africa. Not only in trade, but also the relations that happily exist between these two countries is very, very high. In terms of trade, we export goods to the Republic of South Africa and we also import a lot of goods from our neighboring state. Uh, That is why we also have the customs union uh, because of the trade that exists uh, between these two countries. President Jacob Zuma will also meet King Imswati III, who is celebrating his 48th birthday this week. I'm Mabongile Tumako in Babane, Swaziland. Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe says sanctions and other unilateral measures are a major impediment to the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals. He was addressing the United Nations General Assembly in New York during a high-level meeting on implementing the SDGs. President Mugabe also raised the question of illicit flows from Africa estimated at around $60 billion annually as further impeding the continent's ability to channel resources towards development. Show in Bryce Peace reports. He called for an exchange of ideas that would inspire nations as they embark on the demanding journey of implementation, but quickly pointed to hurdles his own country faced. Sanctions and other unilateral measures declared and undeclared are a major impediment to the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals. They are a contravention of the principles enshrined in the Charter of the United Nations to which we all profess commitment and adhesion. If the 2030 objective of leaving no one behind is to be achieved, these sanctions should be lifted immediately and unconditionally. President Mugabe called the sanctions blunt instruments of mass punishment and urged a course of friendship rather than destruction. Why should our environment contain persons, countries that seek always to try and destroy us. There is no stage in our development that we have ever felt free to undertake our own development programs. And we have asked again and again that these these sanctions be lifted. But those who impose them regard them as elements whereby they can perhaps discipline us. But we can't be disciplined. We are independent countries, and we don't brook interference in our internal affairs. Please welcome Forrest Whitaker. Earlier, the Community of Nations was called on to rally collectively towards implementing the SDGs by award-winning actor and UNESCO Special Envoy for Peace and Reconciliation, Forrest Whitaker. Time and time again that the greatest change occurs when people swarm together in staggering numbers and form an entity that is far greater than the sum of its parts. A struggle for independence in India, for civil rights in the United States, against apartheid in South Africa. All of these were movements of millions of people working together towards a single goal. 
we have set for ourselves 17 ambitious goals. If we are to achieve them, this has to be an international movement, a coming together of people, a rallying around a common cause on a scale that we have never witnessed before in our history. On Friday, over 160 countries will sign on to the Paris Climate Change Agreement as the UN pushes to have the document enter into force. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. Close to 40,000 teachers in Malawi through their body, the Teachers Union of Malawi, have threatened to stage a sit-in if government fails to resolve their grievances by May the 9th this year. In a statement addressed to the Secretary for Education, Science and Technology, the union also accused the Ministry of failing to resolve teachers' grievances, which were submitted through the office of the Chief Director responsible for primary and secondary education. This is likely to be another the major strike since Peter Mutarika assumed office when learners protested in streets and blocked roads against government's delays to hike teachers' salaries. George Mango reports from Lilongwe. The Teachers Union of Malawi Tum wants salary adjustments for those who were promoted, payment of leave grants for the fiscal year 2015 to 2016 to all secondary school teachers, payment of salary arrears, and reversal of unlawful interdictions. Teachers in public, primary and secondary schools shall hold an industrial action in form of a sitting from May 9, 2016 due to the ministry's inability to resolve teachers' grievances. In the statement, Tum has also criticized government for failing to provide transport for teachers it transferred to various areas and districts after promoting them only to backtrack after their failure to report new workstations. Statement, which has been written by Tum President Chaluka Mwake and Secretary General Dennis Kalekeni, reads in part: "To expect these teachers to transport themselves is totally inhuman and unacceptable by all teachers. We therefore demand that the teachers be provided with transport and awarded their hard-earned promotion, or be promoted in their initial schools, as you government." grapple with logistics. The statement further states that the teachers, some of whom had been transferred all the way from the south to the north, east and west, had to ferry themselves to their newly designated places. The teachers' organization is also demanding that Minister of Education Emmanuel Fabiano retract his statement to the effect that government had withdrawn the promotions due to failure by teachers to report to their new duty stations. Some teachers interviewed at random want quick actions from the government. According to the teachers, government's hide-and-seek games are retrogressive to education in Malawi. I'm very disappointed. This is the first time we have seen this issue. But, to my knowledge, I hope maybe if the government can do something, because it's very bad, because everybody, as I'm, as I'm speaking now, pupils are not learning, which means we will have... A Malawi without a future, bright future, because pupils will not will not write exams. Once maybe they will write exams, but they will not pass because they are not learning. Okay, what I want government to do is they should speed up their discussions with the uh, the uh, the tum. Um, my name is James Custom. Custom, I'm one of the teachers. Salaries have to be paid before the math ends. Uh, this is not proper. How do they expect us to teach when we are not even paid? We have water, electricity, and rental bills to, to, to settle. 
It is good that the pupils have teamed up with us to force government to pay us at the right time because this is like torturing us. We want answers from government on the ma- on the matter so that we have food on our tables. It's a high time for government to take a, uh, an action here because uh, looking out at our pupils are not uh, running up to now for now three weeks up to now. So from now. They were going to sit for their final exams, terminal exams. So we, we expect to have results after all. Meanwhile, Education Minister Fabiano has confirmed receipt of the letter. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now Cameroon has burned 4,000 elephant tusks and artifacts made of ivory as a strong indication of its commitment to stop illegal ivory trade and poaching. The ceremony was attended by the United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power. Cameroon has in less than five years lost more than 50% of its elephants to armed poachers, some of them Sudanese Janjaweed rebels. Mugi Kinzaga reports from Yawunde. The 2,000 elephant tusks and more than 1,700 art objects made of ivory were seized from poachers and traffickers transporting the goods out of Cameroon in 2016. Kaba Eric, wildlife crime specialist working with the non-governmental organization Last Great Ape, Laga, says President Paul Bia ordered the burning of the ivory as a strong indication, Cameroon was fully against the massacre of elephants for ivory. Governments and conservationists believe that it is a very important move to send a strong message to traffickers that the government is not letting go the fight against wildlife trafficking, against ivory trafficking. The government wants to send a very clear and loud message that traffickers be aware we are coming, we are going to get you. We have seen from experience that Ivory that has been stored easily gets back to the black market through governance issues 
and we understand the market is stimulating poaching of uh, elephants for their ivory. So when you, once you take out the ivory, the, even the one that is taught, once you take out that in, of, in the equation, it creates a kind of situation where ivory traffickers will find uh, practically no ivory to, to sell. And the United States, for example, has been assisting the government of Cameroon in its fight against wildlife trafficking. So it's but normal that they are part of the process. Ngole Philip Ngwese, Cameroon's Minister of Forestry and Wildlife, says by incinerating the ivory, his country has respected the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, CITES, and other multilateral environmental agreements it ratified. The President of the Republic wishes to assert our country's commitment to abide by the provisions of the Convention on Illegal Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. Anti-poaching efforts over the years in Cameroon resulted to the seizure of 3,500 kilograms of raw ivory and 268 kilograms of ivory objects. The country has lost 10,000 of its 21,000 remaining elephants in the last seven years. Janjaweed rebels from Sudan have been active in the country's parks, destroying the gigantic mammals for ivory they sell in Asian markets. The United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power, who attended the ceremony, congratulated Cameroon for the initiative, saying she would support African countries fighting poaching. Today is a day to celebrate because it marks the first time ever that the government of Cameroon has held an ivory burn. This is also a profoundly sobering event because the pile you see is a tangible reminder that the slaughter of elephants, pangolins, rhinos, and other irreplaceable species persists. Governments have a vital security interest in ensuring that those who engage in wildlife trafficking and those who profit from turning a blind eye to it are held accountable. Conservation groups say Cameroon needs to enhance monitoring at entry and exit points and encourage intelligence-led investigations into criminal networks to deter ivory trafficking. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. As hunger and disease threatens the lives of many, more than one million people in South Sudan, 20% of them children under the age of five, have received life-saving assistance. This is thanks to joint efforts by the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, together with the UN's World Food Programme through emergency missions to communities hardest hit by conflict in the northeastern African nation. Even before the conflict began, South Sudan was already one of the most difficult countries in the world to deliver relief assistance in, with 60% of the country inaccessible by road during the rainy season. Insecurity has further hampered the delivery of aid and lack of funding has now forced some partners to shut down services. Andrea James, Chief of Field Operations at UNICEF, says South Sudanese children continue to suffer from the effects of the conflict. I mean, it's been more than two years since the conflict started and there's been repeated displacement and violence affecting all families and in particular children and their families in South Sudan. We have over 900,000 children that have been displaced internally within South Sudan 
and another 400,000 children that have fled to neighboring countries. There are about a quarter of a million children that are severely malnourished, and we have a situation where children have been forced to drop out of school at a rate of about half a million children out of school. Over one million children have missed out on life-saving vaccinations due to the conflict, and up to 16,000 children are estimated to have been recruited or used by armed forces and groups in the country. What are your priorities for South Sudan at the moment? What are you mainly focusing on? Yes, we've just recently completed 82 missions, which has reached over 1 million people, including about 200,000 children under five with life-saving interventions. And this is a joint initiative with the World Food Programme. So during those missions, we actually send in teams of technical specialists that provide a package. The World Food Program will provide the food. UNICEF and partners will provide screening for nutrition, also providing health interventions such as vaccinations for children under five and also for pregnant and lactating mothers. Also, we're providing water sanitation and hygiene, and that can be from repairing a borehole have access to safe drinking water, to providing them with buckets and purification tablets so they can purify the water and have safe drinking water, in addition to hygiene messages as to how you can reduce the risk of certain uh, diseases. These missions range anywhere from a week to 10 days, where the teams fly in to remote locations that have been cut off. I mean, this is the criteria for, for these types of missions. And uh, the teams fly in, set up tents, and they will stay with the community to provide this type of assistance. And that sometimes actually means having to walk or take a boat to reach some of these communities to provide them with these services. In addition, we also work on emergency education. So if we can work with the community, if there is an existing school or a school that was previously functioning, We'll provide school supplies and also try and help get the school up and running, at least for some emergency type of education, which is a way to actually ensure that kids have some activities and are getting some form of learning. And then, of course, we do a round of registering children that have either been separated from their families or they're by themselves, which is what we call unaccompanied children. And as much as possible, we try to link them up with their family and caregivers that can take care of them. Generally, has there been enough funding to carry out humanitarian work? Well, we're now into two years of running this program, and that's one of the challenges that we have right now, is funding to continue this type of work. So we are short of funds. I mean, for UNICEF overall, funding appeal is $154 million US dollars, and we received about close to $30 million for our current humanitarian appeal. You can appreciate that as the crisis continues and as the economic crisis is having a huge impact on the resilience and the ability of families to actually even access food, let alone other types of services, there's more of a need for this type of assistance. It's critical to really work in these remote locations and provide life-saving assistance. Otherwise, these families wouldn't have any sort of care available to them. Funding is a major challenge for us. Now, apart from the issue of funding, can you speak about some of the challenges that UNICEF and partners face in responding to humanitarian needs in a country with little infrastructure and a rapidly evolving conflict? Yes. I mean, we've had access challenges due to the conflict. So there's occasions where we're not able to access areas or we actually have to really advocate with the different actors, armed groups, 
on the ground to gain access. So that's one of the challenges that we've had. A key challenge that we're facing right now is, as you mentioned, in a country like South Sudan, where the infrastructure network is just not there, we have to, during the dry season, which is right now, we're able to access certain areas through the road, but many of those locations we can't access even in the dry season. So as we're getting ready to go into the rainy season, it will mean that we'll have to rely more and more on air transportation, which is hugely expensive to fly supplies and also to fly people, meaning the humanitarian staff, into these locations to actually provide the assistance. So right now we're really looking at a situation of as the rains approach, we will need funding to actually continue this type of assistance by air. Just finally there, what messages do you think that the international community needs to hear regarding the crisis in South Sudan? I mean, I think really after more than two years of a conflict, which has seen repeated multiple displacement of children and their families and a lot of violence that really uh, only lasting and unconditional peace will allow the children of South Sudan to recover physically and emotionally and to be reunited with their families and return to school. Economic crisis right now is really having a huge impact and peace is something which the citizens of South Sudan and certainly the children deserve and it will allow that those services can continue and that children can be reunited with their families and go back to school. That was Andrea James, Chief of Field Operations at the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, on the line from Juba in South Sudan, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.30 and it's headlines up next with Onil Nsinzi. Chad's incumbent President Idris Deby wins a fifth term in office. Cordova's former First Lady Simone Bagbo to go on trial on charges of crimes against humanity. And Amnesty International says it has new evidence about the Nigerian Army's mass killings. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelintzinzi. Thank you, Onele. The South African government says it has given directives to the ministers of finance, labor and mineral resources to start what it calls a constructive engagement with the country's four major banks, which closed down the bank accounts of the Gupta-owned Oak Bay Resources. 
APSA, FNB, Standard Bank and NetBank made a surprise announcement a couple of weeks ago that they had closed down the accounts of Oak Bay Resources. Briefing the media in Cape Town following a cabinet meeting, the Minister and the Presidency, Jeff Khadebe, told journalists that while cabinet respects the decision by the four banks, it views it as a potential threat to defer future investors. Abonga Kobokane felt this report. Minister Khadebe briefed journalists on the outcome of a cabinet meeting that cabinet has established a task team comprising of three ministers of finance, labor and mineral resources to engage with the country's four major banks following their decision to cut ties with the Gupta-owned Bay resources. This came amid claims of the so-called state capture by the Gupta family, a claim the family has denied. Khadebe explains cabinet's decision to get involved to the fallout between the the banks and the Oak Bay resources. Cabinet noted the actions by the four banks that gave notice to close the bank account of a company. Whilst Cabinet appreciates the terms and conditions of the banks, the acts may deter future potential investors who may want to do business in South Africa. Cabinet endorsed that the ministers of finance labor and mineral resources should open a constructive engagement with the banks to find a lasting solution to this matter. Minister Khadebe also told the media that Cabinet has welcomed the Constitutional Court judgment on the remedial action of the public protector. Cabinet is studying the judgment to establish if there are any other actions to be undertaken to strengthen the role of the public service. The Constitutional Court judgment reinforces and assess South Africa's constitutional democracy. Khadebe says Cabinet has also approved several draft bills. Cabinet adopted the White Paper on Policy. This draft White Paper was first published for public comment in March of 2015. The paper provides for a police service that is biased towards active citizenry and responds to the existing policing environment. It also provides for a South African police service and metro police that is accountable and professional. That report by Abongwe Kobogana. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. It's 8.34 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South African consumers should brace themselves for higher food prices over the next year. Prices of non-processed food increased by almost 13% this week, according to new CPI data released by Statistics South Africa. Current food price inflation now sits at 9.8%, almost a 10% increase. The country is also experiencing a serious shortfall in yellow maize and will have to import maize 
to make up the poor grain production this year due to the drought. Many farmers have failed to satisfy the market while demand for food is increasing. Amina Akram reports. South Africa is experiencing one of its worst droughts in history. The country is having a serious yellow maize shortfall. The grain mostly used for various food industries and to feed livestock means that livestock farmers will now have to look for alternative feed for their animals. One silo in the northwest province with a capacity of 39,000 tons only has stocked 18,000 tons of grain with no presence of yellow maize stocked. Pete Classy is manager of the Afgri silo in Brits. We short for maize, white and yellow. Uh, estimated that the last year is about a dust silo only. Maize you talk about 25 to 45,000 tons. That was less than last year. My capacity is 65,000. Um, I'm standing at um, 18,000. Classy says many farmers in the northwest region are experiencing difficulty with their harvest. He in turn says he has had to increase his prices to the millers as his stock level continues to drop. They can't plant. If it's not raining, there's no, there's no, no crop. All of them say the, the, the production is lower than last year. We have here, yeah, I'll say about 90, 90, 95 farmers. And I've heard of only one that said it's better than last year. The, the, the rest, all of them, say <clears throat> that say they usually harvest about 9, 9 to 12, 13 tons, sometimes 15 tons in, in good years. This, this year they battled to, to harvest eight, seven to eight tons. Wheat, maize, soya and sunflower growing farmers in the region say they are struggling. Number one, that's uh, the drought. Uh, the excessive heat is just, uh, we, we just didn't get enough. We just didn't produce enough. Our tons per, per, per hectare was just not enough. We usually uh, produce around 9, 9.5, 10 tons per hectare. That's yellow maize. This year it's about six, seven. Because of the shortage uh, in yellow maize, obviously the, the, the price is a, it's a bit higher than, than it was last year. But the produce, the, 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 the tonnage is a bit low. I, I doubt if uh, the sellers have got enough. And remember, we've got the winter um, waiting for us. So we can expect the first rain and we can expect the first food for, for cattle and sheep and goats by the end of um, October, November. By the end of the day, um, the consumer is going to pay for it. Otherwise, the farmer is out of the game. A lot of the farmers who don't have water, they are struggling. It's very, very dry. The people don't plant. People don't plant because it's, they are on risk. I mean, okay, now it's winter time. Whitey Basson, CEO of ShopRite, says consumers should change their eating habits to counter the escalating food price increases. There's big pressure. But I don't really think for any reason that I can think of. There's also drops in prices. So if you, if you don't buy uh, vegetables fresh, you can buy frozen vegetables for a fraction. I think it's, I think it's about 5% is our increase year on year on frozen vegetables. We bought that in and we had contracts with the buyers, with the suppliers, etc. So all you need to do is to switch certain products. If you look at the category of meat, lamb has gone up in excess of 14%. Pork has dropped by 4%, so you can switch from, from mud lamb to pork. 
Agriculture economists expect the high food prices to level sometime next year. Green South Africa this week reported that South Africa will have to lower its estimates for maize production this season due to the damage caused by the drought. Growers are estimated to produce 7 million tons this year instead of the 9.96 million tons produced last year. That report by Amina Akram. Queen Elizabeth II, Britain's oldest and longest-serving monarch, yesterday celebrated her 90th birthday. While wishes of congratulations poured into Buckingham Palace from all over the world, her birthday was also marked at a function hosted by the British High Commissioner to South Africa, Dame Judith McGregor, in Pretoria last night. In this exclusive interview with Channel Africa's Janine Gutzer, Dame Judith paid tribute to the Queen, describing her as a role model for women globally. I think the thing that's special about her is that she ascended to the throne at age 26 when her father unexpectedly died. And without much more ado, she became queen in a changing world where the empire of the old British was, British government was, was changing. And she simply sailed into the job. And 13 prime ministers later, she is still working as the constitutional monarch. She talks with government, with prime ministers, She has her role in Parliament. I think the extraordinary thing about her really is that she's been both a wife and a mother, four children, and she's clearly someone who likes riding, who likes the countryside, who has interests, but she's extraordinarily hardworking and throws herself into her work. So she's an extraordinary role model, actually, for women worldwide. If you say that she's working very hard, in your address here tonight, you did mention that she's very involved in certain organizations and charities and things. Give us a few examples of what she's doing. Well, she does a lot of work in sort of, I mean, as the royal, frankly, anything with the word royal in front of it in the UK will be something under her patronage. But she's particularly taken an interest, for example, in soldiers who have been medevaced out or who no longer take part in being soldiers. There's a very strong connection with the monarchy and its armed forces being a sort of almost like a responsibility to look after the families, to look after the health and the welfare of the armed forces, so the Royal British Legion. She's also been very involved, actually, through her jubilee, her diamond jubilee, in 2012, when she initiated a campaign that for the 60 years she'd been on the throne, 60 new forests would be planted in the UK. 60 new walkways would exist in London that were accessible to wheelchairs. And I can tell you that was quite a big deal because a lot of London's very old. And if you're in a wheelchair, you know, it was pretty difficult to get around central London. So when you go to London now, actually, miraculously, you can actually go all the way around the big sites in a wheelchair. So I think she's been a focus for tradition, a focus for the family. She is a very devout churchgoer. She's someone with a lot of fun. I organized a visit for her to Paris in 1992. And, you know, and she was a very easy person to work for and somebody who took a lot of pleasure in doing what could be seen as being a rather, you know, work-a-day thing. A state visit is long hours, lots of conversations. She speaks French. She was very much at home. And I think just her sheer pleasure in carrying out her duty is nice to be near. How 
popular is the monarchy still in modern times in Britain and in general? I mean, is she still a um, 99% much-loved figure or is there also a big pressure anti-monarchy-wise? I think the anti-monarchy sort of interest, as it were, ebbs and flows. There was a period, the Queen described it as uh, Anna's horribilis, a horrible year, in 1992, when... Diana and Charles, Princess Diana and the Prince of Wales were clearly not getting on very well. And there was a sense that the dream was falling apart and the, the great film The Queen about that period when the monarchy for once appeared to sort of lose some popular understanding. But I have to say that they regained it very fast when, and I think in the film, you know, you see that the Queen really, in the fictional depiction, Actually, her whole life was her duty. And therefore, if that was not working, she needed to understand and to make it work. And I think that's how she looks at it. The family is something with the privileges of the rank, but there are huge responsibilities that go with that. And I think, frankly, that's a popular message. We are marking her birthday here in South Africa tonight. Listeners across Africa will also hear this. What is the Queen's interest at this age and in her career in the past with countries in Africa? The Commonwealth is an important thing. We all know about the colonial era, post-colonialism, post-independence. Is there still a big interest of her in our continent? There's a huge interest, actually, and she's obviously communicated that. Well, to be fair, Prince Philip, too, through his World Wildlife Fund chairmanship, I think there's been a continual interest by the royal family in Africa. And I was very struck when Prince Harry came here last year that, actually, he knew the country well. He has a charity in Lesotho, which is a very admirable charity, but he knows South Africa very well. He often comes here privately. In a way, if you like, he grew up understanding that Africa was important. And I'd say the Queen has really worked extremely hard to be the Queen to the other realms. And And that was the British High Commissioner to South Africa, Dame Judith McGregor, speaking to Channel Africa's Janine Gutzer. It's 8.45 and we say good morning to Tavisa Lohoko with our economics update. Nigeria's government has collected more than 13.57 billion US dollars in its treasury single account. Last year, President Mohamedou Buhari ordered the merger of state accounts into one account at the central bank to reduce corruption and a practice where the government borrowed back its own funds from lenders at an interest. South African consumers should brace themselves for higher food prices over the next year. Prices of non-processed food increased by almost 13% this week. Current food price inflation now sits at 9.8%, almost a 10% increase. Amina Akram reports. South Africa is experiencing one of its worst droughts in history. The country is having a serious yellow maize shortfall. The grain mostly used for various food industries and to feed livestock means that livestock farmers will now have to look for alternative feed for their animals. 
Meanwhile, South Africa is expected to import more than 4 million tons of both yellow and white maize from next month until April next year. Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries Minister Senze Nizokwana revealed this at the National Assembly when he delivered his budget speech on his department's budget vote. Zokwana has also given the amounts imported during the current maize marketing season. To date, we have imported 1.7 million tons of yellow maize. We have imported 72 tons of white maize. We, ne- we have two weeks left in the current marketing season. This is almost exactly what we anticipated in December 2015. For the next season, 1st May 2016 to 31 April 2017, we still anticipate imports of 4.3 tons to 2.4 yellow maize and white maize, 1.9 white maize. The Ugandan government and the private sector have been urged to come together and invest heavily in tourism because the sector offers a big potential in reducing unemployment. The travel and tourism industry is one of the largest and most dynamic industries in today's global economy. Recent developments on the African continent show that tourism is increasingly attracting regional and international investment and returns on investments in the sector remain among the highest in the world. The battle for Europe's third largest electrical goods retailer, Darty, has intensified as South Africa's Steinhoff and French rival, FNAC, frantically tried to outbid each other. Five new offers in less than 24 hours lifted Darty shares by more than 23%. Darty is attracting suitors for different reasons. The US dollar trades at 14.25 in South Africa, 10.54 in Botswana, 9.29 in Zambia, 6.9 British pound, 8.8 euro. Gold is trading at $1,249, platinum $1,021 an ounce, brand crude oil $44.97 a barrel. Africa rise and shine. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. Now, sports update this hour. Let's kick off with football news. The African dream. It's not over for South Africa's Mamelodi Sundowns, despite having been knocked out of the lucrative African Champions League by Democratic Republic of Congo Giants AS Vita on an away goal rule. Needing to win by a clear two-goal margin, the Brazilians could only manage a 2-1 win which was not enough to reach the lucrative group stages after they had lost 1-0 in Kinshasa two weeks ago. On Thursday afternoon, they have been drawn against Mediama Sporting Club from Ghana in the CAF Confederations Cup playoff. And should they win this tie, they will play in the group stages of the second tier competition. Sundowns coach Peter Musimane says their mentality is going to be tested now. The first leg will be played in Pretoria in the weekend of the 6th to the 8th of next month, with the return leg in Takwa scheduled for two weeks later on another midweek schedule.
Winners proceed to the group stages. And in local football, South African Premiership side Orlando Pirates will be aiming to hit two bids with one stone in their Netbank Cup quarterfinal clash against the, the defending champions, Mamelodi Sundowns, at the FNB Stadium on Saturday. The Netbank Cup competitions is the only hope of the Buccaneers ending their barren run to finishing the season with some silverware and also qualifying for next year's CAF Confederations Cup tournament. With Pirates having already lost twice to Pizzo Musimani and his charges in the Absa Premiership this season, Tinkler emphasizes the importance of a victory over the Kluorkop side. It's obviously important for us to get a positive result against Sundowns this season. Our two league matches, we unfortunately finished on the wrong side of the points tally. And obviously this is the quarterfinals of the Nedbank and a very important game for us. Try and finish off the season on a positive note by winning a trophy. It's a very important game for us and the players are looking forward to the game. But it's going to be a very, very tough test against a very, very strong team. In my opinion, definitely the best team in the league this season and more than likely will be crowned champions. We're going to have to work extremely hard to ensure that we get a positive result against them and move on in this competition into the semi-final. Winning the Nedbank Cup, winning silverware, that's very important. For me, on a personal note, I would like to finish my first season off as a head coach, having won a trophy. That's important. Also for the team and the players, after the disappointment that we've had this season, the added benefit is the fact that obviously if we do, we go back into Africa, where we all want to be, because we would obviously like to get back into Confederations Cup or the Champions League and try and go all the way uh, in winning that competition. In Olympics, preparations for athletes in Malawi ahead of the Rio 2016 Olympics intensify in earnest as the curtains draw closer to the Games. The Malawi Olympic Committee, the MOC, has put in place intensive training schedule for the athletes to qualify for the global showpiece. Two of the sporting coaches, swimming and lawn tennis, likely to bring medals to Malawi, have had their athletes being sent abroad for adequate training. A swimmer is currently in Denmark while a long tennis athlete has been sent to the U.S. for training. The rest of the athletes are in Malawi, undergoing training for the Rio event. MOC President Oscar Kanjali has more. Indeed have um, athletes that are training abroad. Uh, we have one female athlete uh, training in Denmark uh, on our scholarship. Uh, we had offered a scholarship to these athletes over the past uh, three years, four years uh, in swimming. We also have one athlete in uh, lawn tennis uh, who is training in the U.S. Um, Apart from those two, the rest of our athletes are doing their preparations within the country. While some countries have had their athletes qualified for Rio event, athletes in Malawi are yet to go through their qualification phase. Ganjale says three sporting codes would feature prominently for Malawi in Rio, namely athletics, swimming, and judo. We are yet to go through the qualifications. Three of the sport codes that were earmarked for the Olympic Games uh, had sent uh, the athletes for uh, the qualifying events. Unfortunately, they did not do well. Uh, but we've got three more sport codes which are awaiting their final uh, qualifying events. These are athletics, swimming, uh, judo, yes, uh, and judo. So yeah, we are waiting to, to see the results of those three uh, uh, qualifying competitions. We are hopeful that maybe for the first time we will, in, in many years, we will uh, eventually find an athlete or two that will have uh, participated under uh, the normal qualification system. That's your sport news this hour.
Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, South Africa confident that all member states of SACU will continue to cooperate and build bilateral trade relations. And Britain's oldest and longest-serving monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, celebrated her 90th birthday. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Tracy Bungard, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to a of the hour for the news is Richie S with a track titled African Dance.